KZSU FM Stanford, welcome to another edition of Hearsay Culture. My name is Dave Levine. I'm an associate professor at Elon University School of Law, an affiliate scholar at the Center for Internet Society at Stanford Law School, and a visiting research collaborator at Princeton Center for Information Technology Policy. Today, I'm very excited to have on the show for this inaugural spring quarter on KZSU FM schedule. Benjamin Peters, the author of the just-released book, How Not to Network a Nation, The Uneasy History of the Soviet Internet. So you may immediately react to this in the first instance and say, there was a Soviet Internet? Because that was my initial reaction when uh, I heard Ben speak about this book at Yale's Black Box Society conference that was organized by Frank Pasquale and the Yale Information Society Project a few years, a few weeks ago, excuse me. Um, and Ben did a presentation where he talked broadly about informational issues and transparency, but mentioned in passing that he had this new book. Um, and I chatted with Ben after his really fascinating talk. Um, he was very kind uh, to offer me, and, and I, I, I say this on the air, to offer me the only copy he had of the book uh, on the day that it was uh, actually uh, made public, and so I was very grateful for that. But then having read the book in the intervening few weeks, it is a wonderful and fascinating read. Um, ben, who is at the University of Tulsa uh, in the communications department as an assistant professor and also affiliated with the Information Society Project at Yale Law School, um, has written a fascinating history about the failed efforts of various Soviet bureaucracies, Soviet scientists, and indeed going all the way up to the upper levels of the Kremlins, efforts in fits and starts to create something that looked in some ways like a a current modern internet. These nascent efforts um, occurred roughly from the 60s through roughly, and I'll, Ben could talk about this in more detail, uh, the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, and there were a few kind of slower, minor efforts before a bigger effort that went over the course of, uh, based upon uh, Ben's Benjamin's history, roughly 20 years, uh, that really never coalesced into anything more than it appears to be hopes and dreams. Those hopes and dreams um, were varied. Um, and unlike how we understand the original founder of the modern internet through DARPA, but also the uh, original theorists like uh, Vandiver Bush and others, we had this image of this global information sharing network that would be have loose controls, which of course uh, cyber utopianism uh, focused on, but which has has not played out uh, in that way in a lot of ways. And interestingly, the Soviet early Soviet internet architects had something similar in mind, but quickly ran into the Soviet bureaucracy and the power struggles that exist within uh, totalitarian and secretive governments that quickly unraveled those efforts. Uh, the book is indeed a history, but it's a history written with a very keen eye towards not only insights for today, but a keen and really impressive understanding of the broader communication and sociological and political context of these efforts. And in that way, as I mentioned to uh, Benjamin in our pre-interview, um, one of the highest praise that I can offer for any 
author on this show is to point out when I found insights for my own work, which is not on the history of the Soviet Union, but which focuses on information systems. So Benjamin's book, uh, and we're going to dive into it uh, in just a moment, uh, really gives a very broad uh, history, uh, an insightful history and well-annotated history of this fascinating and, and not largely known study. Uh, Benjamin uh, notes that he went into previously uh, un- inaccessible archives, obviously it goes without saying that to do this kind of research one needs to speak the language uh, and so he was able to get into documents that uh, had not been previously accessed by researchers uh, and some of those are reproduced in the book but it, it is really fascinating and I'm very excited to have Benjamin on the show today. Uh, we are recording this show uh, on uh, April uh, 22nd, uh, 2016, uh, for airing today uh, on KZSU. Uh, Benjamin is joining us via Skype, and I appreciate, Benjamin, you taking the time today to join me on the show. Thank you, Dave. It's a delight. I'm flattered and glad to be here. No, this is terrific. Um, so let me ask you this question, Benjamin. For, for my listeners that aren't familiar, tell us a bit more about your background and why you wrote this book. Of course, sure. So, you know, um, well, let me let me just say as a personal note, I'm I'm a, in addition to a scholar, I'm also a, a family man, uh, and right now there's a um, my children have been singing the Hamilton uh, soundtrack at nonstop, and I I have this one line stuck in my head, you know, the Schuyler sisters go on about how lucky we are to be alive right now. And you know, there's some there's some truth in that for me personally as well as professionally. I think about the purpose of this book and why it's coming out right now. And I think, you know, we're we're at a special moment in time uh, when I hope that this book can help speak to a number of issues. This is the 30th year anniversary of Chernobyl. It's uh, right now. There's on the Capitol. There's populist protests against big money and government. Uh, we have a very interesting political debate in the national scene. And I'm hoping that um, this book can speak to the present. So I think, you know, that's that's ultimately what it's a, about uh, for me today. But but it has a story that takes me back a little bit. So I'll try to I'll try to say a little bit about that. This book began for me kind of at a uh, with a double fascination or two moments in my personal history. So the first is to go back to let's say the spring of 2001, when at the tail end of two years of volunteer service in provincial Russia, um, I found myself in a small, well, relatively small city called Balakova. Uh, Balakova was, I mean, it's a, it's a no-name city today, but it's a, a very, it was a beautiful place to have spent a few months. And I remember it was the evening of this uh, beautiful spring even, uh, night, uh, or it, it, there was a sunset, and I was standing at the, what do you call this, the the uh, bank of the Volga River, uh, which passes through, and I was looking out on this gorgeous sunset, looking at the reflection of the sunlight in the in the reservoir that stretched before me, and I thought, what a gorgeous place! I'm so happy to be here in Russia. And then I also was struck at that moment by um, this this some, something felt out of place, uh, and that that was as I looked around, I saw a giant hydroelectric dam. Uh, that stretched, you know, almost a kilometer in front of me. Uh, there was four nuclear power plants across on the other, uh, uh, the, the far horizon. To my right, b- behind me, there was secret military factories that had once produced 
you know, substance uh, materials for the cosmonautic in industry. Industry, um, and I was just struck, like, what in the world? What kind of imagination would decide that this bucolic, pretty little city in the middle of nowhere would be a great place to invest such industrial infrastructural might? Hmm. You know, why? Uh, why would we plan a city like this? And I think it was at that moment, as a twenty-something-year-old, that I became initially interested in the imagination, uh, the political economic imagination of Soviet planning. Um, and then fast forward a little bit um, to 2007 when I was a doctoral student in at Columbia. I was searching for a dissertation project and I stumbled upon uh, a footnote um, in the biography of, a, um, of Norbert Wiener, a founder of cybernetics, which I can say more about in a moment. Yep. And, it, and it was in the footnote that I, I read about uh, a 1962 report um, that the CIA had had issued to itself, some Russian specialist named John J. Ford. And he had uh, noted that in 1962, the Soviets were developing, quote, a unified information network. And I remember just sitting there in my my apartment uh, on, uh, you know, 112th and Broadway um, and thinking to myself, of, of course, you know, of course the Soviets were developing a unified information network a project in 1962. Why don't I know more about this? What, mm. what were the, what happened? And you know, it was those two moments where I was already thinking about the larger state and social, political, economic implications of, of a of a regime now past, and as well as this little sort of tenacious question that lodged itself in my mind: Why wasn't there a Soviet internet that uh, kind of brought me to end up writing? Uh, this book over the last few years, hmm. and and I I did mention, and I think I think the listeners would be interested. So, and you just alluded to it. So, you spent um, a fair uh, amount of time, obviously, having to do this primary research uh, in the former Soviet Union, a variety of places. Talk a little bit about that from a from more from an informational and research standpoint, because as I mentioned, uh, you allude to and, and reference documents that really weren't previously accessible. Uh, talk to us a bit about that research process, and particularly diving into files that, uh, you know, 30 years ago, it would have been inconceivable that we, anyone would have been seeing, much less an American scholar. Yeah, thanks. Well, that's great. So I, when I set out to do this project, I thought it was going to be, and as it is, a history of computer networks and their, uh, and their sort of support pieces. Um, and that's true, but it also turns out that my story ended up hanging largely on interpersonal networks and how, you know, the, they have their own rhyme and reason. Um, and, and that became very clear to me as a researcher. So in 2007, I set off to figure out what's going on with the Soviet internet and I did all I could from New York for a year looking up FOIA requests and doing what research I could and um, you know in the library and contacting people by email and then in 2008 the summer I ended up in Moscow um, with some invitations I had all the tools you know the language uh, and a few of the connections I needed to get into the libraries uh, and I remember just encountering brick wall after brick wall and it was a, a very tough time. Um, I, I remember this one moment when I was kind of in a, 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 a central library at Moscow State University, and I, I had the sense that there were some important documents I needed to get to that were just like one archive room away from me. Um, um, but I also, it was quite clear that I just, as an American or an outsider, wasn't going to be permitted to see those documents. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember the 
the sort of the discouraging disappointment set in as I realized I was probably farther away uh, <laughs> from these materials uh, then uh, than I was even uh, in New York. But that that uh, that changed, um, and that changed thanks to the good fortunes of interpersonal networks. As it happened uh, at that moment, actually, I emailed Slava Gorovich, who's a MIT historian of science. Um, and who had been an, an, an important uh, contact for me previously. Um, and I said, look, I'm stuck. I don't know what to do. I've got this cool project. Do you know anything about it? Can, and I was building off of his earlier work Soviet, uh, on Soviet cybernetics. And he wrote back with the most amazing email. He said, Ben, not only do I know uh, who you need to go talk to, but I'm working on a draft of an uh, article itself. Here it is. And so he gave me a draft of a pre-published pre article that ended up being the basis for the book, hmm. um, and that introduced and opened up to me a new social network, not in Moscow, but in, but in Kiev, um, in Ukraine. And so it was in subsequent years that I was able to make contacts with uh, the social networks of the protagonist uh, of, of my book, uh, Viktor Mikhailovich Glushkov. And that that uh you know it was it was thanks to that kind of introduction that I got access to not all the archives. Please don't get me wrong. There's definitely more to be told about right. this book right. or this story. Um, but I I got access to um, an unprecedented amount of uh, 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 materials, including you know archives that weren't even really archives, stacks of papers that nobody had ever uh, sorted or indexed um, that were just kind of abandoned in an, in an office uh, from 30 years ago. Um, so there, you know, this, this is uh, Marshall McLuhan, the, the media popularizer and, and theorist once put it well. He said, um, the first thing a foreigner needs to know when visiting Russia is that there are no phone books. <laughs> and I think the point is uh, that Russia and the Soviet Union has long operated according to its own social network rhythms and, and reasons. Um, and that that was very evident to me as a researcher. And I can say more about how that ends up coloring and inflecting uh, my conclusions uh, uh, later on in the interview. Yeah, and I'd love to get to that. We're chatting with Benjamin Peters, author of the new book, How Not to Network a Nation, The Uneasy History of the Soviet Internet on KZSU-FM Stanford. Um, yeah, so, so you alluded to this already, Benjamin, and I want to, in order to frame our discussion, um, you know, you said that this is not just a history, um, and I agree, based having read the book. Um, why focus on the lack of Soviet architecture, right? I mean, you know, in other words, oftentimes you'll read histories that focus on what happened. In a lot of ways, you're focusing on what didn't happen. Why? That's a great question. So, um, I think... I think that, well, uh, as my historian mentors have made clear, there's a very important difference in between a negative history and a counterfactual history. And negative histories, or what didn't happen, are totally fair game. One can ask, uh, why wasn't there a, a modernist sort of print revolution in er early modern China in, 1900, in, in 900s when they developed the, their own version of the printing press? Or one can ask, uh, you know, uh, uh, why wasn't or why wasn't there um, uh, fill in the blank uh, um, a, a socialist revolution in um, in the 1800s in in uh, America? 
right? But uh, that kind of not, the negative question, the not in that question prompts us to study what still happens. Um, and so even though you're absolutely right to frame my question as um, uh, one about lack, it is also a story of attempts and efforts and you know genuine initiatives, uh, projects and administration um, and other efforts that uh, were very real uh, and have real stories and I think deserve a sympathetic and rigorous telling from, from their own point of view. And in the end, that's an important um, uh, kind of proposition to take seriously if, if we're ever to understand science or technology and especially law which is that you know our administration, uh, our institutions, um, uh, they guarantee no success, and yet they are real and they and they shape things. And I think this injects um, an, a healthful dose of considered contingency into how we think about technology, society, and law. It makes us realize that uh, um, the history of new media innovations and technological and scientific progress, for example, is not uh, a, a kind of parade of geeks and hackers uh, um, uh, marching to you know, ever warmer uh, progress progressive beats but instead it sort of says you know what things fail a lot and we need to take this seriously um, uh, and it, it's not uh, unique to the Soviet experience uh, our, our common experience of, of failure so let me ask you this uh, as we delve a little more closely into books. I'm gonna, I think I'm going to ask you your classic question that one would ask anyone who's written a book uh, that in any way has an academic patina, meaning right, you've done things like accurately and well footnoted your conclusions. So I'm going to ask you this question, although I, I don't know, I don't know if it's if it's uh, a fair question. Uh, Benjamin, I'm going to ask it. What is what is your core thesis? Now, again, I, and the reason why I say it's a tough one because, as you point out, this book is a lot of different things. But if you were going to, if you know, if you were in front of a you know group uh, defending the book, as it were, what is the thesis that you would want the reader to take away from it? Excellent. It's a two-step. Here's the first step: that modern global networks took shape thanks to surprising amounts of institutional collaboration and state funding, while the Soviet uh, contemporary projects stumbled due to unregulated competition and infighting among bureaucrats, institutions, and other actors. So, in short, the capitalists behave like socialists in the case of the ARPANET, while the socialists behave like capitalists in the case of the OGOS network that I can describe. Um, so that's the first step. Uh, and the second step is to point out that what that means is it's kind of a sideways glance. At, I, I want to twist and move beyond the old uh, Cold War debates between state and market. But what this means for me is that our modern networked world is a result of neither market triumphs nor state failures alone. And the book complicates that un uneasy reversal, and it draws out an allegory to our own moment, I think, which is that modern science and technology needs to move beyond... Uh, a, a debate around um, sort of uh, is it this a product of private markets or of public states and it instead it needs to recognize that private parties for the longest time today the NSA and Google or in the Soviet period uh, other general secretaries have long been interested in privatizing our information um, and, and sort of we can see throughout particularly the 20th century a rise of private organizational power 
that has taken information very seriously, um, and often to the disadvantage of public-minded projects, and that those interests are equally shared among state and market actors. And I'm, my hope is that the Cold War uh, comparative piece that I offer here can, can offer a kind of cautionary tale and insight into rethinking our own political coordinates, um, and, and maybe perhaps moving beyond the classic or the sort of liberal economic uh, discourse of markets and states. Well, that, I mean, so so you have said clearly something that could now, we could easily, I could just say expand and then go get a sandwich and, you know, that's that's 40 minutes right there, uh, Benjamin. <laughs> so let me, so let me delve, let me, let me take you up on what you had just said at the beginning, right, to delve a little deeper into that uh, hi- historiographical note that leads to those two steps. So I'm going to simply say continue. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, let's, Let's let's begin with the be- beginning, and you you, you can help uh, sh- uh, shape this. Uh, so, um, I think if I were to tell a little bit of this story, um, right, uh, our story needs to begin um, with what appears to be the height of a Cold War uh, race, a tech race, right? Uh, so the the U.S. Uh, um, military industrial academic complex and the Soviet uh, often militarized state and its big science projects are in this parallel, seemingly parallel race to, to outdo each other in terms of rocketry, in terms of nuclear power, in terms of other big scientific endeavors. Um, and, and so that kind of old Cold War, uh, first-past-the-post race uh, logic helps us ask our question more clearly, which is, all right, so the Soviets pulled off all these amazing accomplishments in some forms of scientific development. Why couldn't they pull off, or why didn't they pull off um, a, 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 a genuinely civil-minded, public-oriented uh, national network project. Um, and as, as my research shows, they tried. It, it wasn't f- for a lack of trying. In fact, for over 30 years, uh, there was a, a particular attempt to build a public-minded project that I think, um, if successful, would have had significant benefits for economic, uh, political, and, and, and social um, kind of purposes in, in the Soviet Union in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, but that same, that same kind of initial logic where you're framing one state against the other um, in, in this race misses the larger picture, right? And the, the larger picture is that the Soviet Union and, and the American um, mid-century institutional engines for science making are not different so much as they are very, very similar. And I, I draw out some important differences, of course. Uh, but ultimately, they're both interested in building large-scale information projects that need regulation um, and that are meant to capitalize on power acquisition. They're, they're, they're gathering power for themselves. Um, and that's, that, I think, is the much bigger point that we need to recognize, is that um, it, because it helps uh, reduce or it's a, it provides an antidote to kind of a post-Cold War technological triumphalism that I think is still very prevalent in many circles today, which would say, well, America and the West, we, we've won, and our technological approaches are better, um, and this, this sort of assuming this blind faith without really assessing what is it about our own um, ways of working that have worked in practice. Um, and, and as I suggest briefly, you know, it's not in American history, but my... My book nevertheless suggests briefly that America was really good at collaborating and at using state funding to 
uh, found um, important infrastructural projects around the ARPANET, but more broadly um, um, as well. And that, that's an important reminder, I think. Um, in fact, it's now almost commonplace among historians to say what I'm saying, that the mid-century is defined by mixed economies. You know, that there, even as we're proclaiming ideological differences of, of capitalism versus socialism, in fact, uh, we're building, both countries are building, uh, and other countries are building a world based off of uh, interagency, inter-industry collaboration and, 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 and funding models. And another way of saying this is, if there's a virtue to what uh, the, the American military-industrial-academic complex history is, it's that there's the word complex in that, mm -hmm. uh, in that phrase. That is, that there is a way for agencies and industries to collaborate with each other. Um, and I, I think that's an important takeaway in, in, in contrast to what my experience of the Soviet system is, which is, while there's all the idea and the goal and the motivation, there wasn't on the ground the practical um, uh, ways of collaborating and uh, uh, sharing resources and, you know, taking a loss uh, as a private in agency in order to advance a larger public-minded project. We are chatting with Benjamin Peters, author of the book How Not to Network a Nation, The Uneasy History of the Soviet Internet on KZSU FM Stanford and Hearsay Culture. Um, Benjamin, before we take a quick break, um, you've alluded to it here, and I think this is an interesting angle um, and insight of your book. You, you, and, and, and I think you can certainly share a few examples of what I'm about to describe. Your book is riddled with the the competitive forces of not only the marketplace but of individuals who in tandem as you allude to are leading not to the development of a network but really the destruction of whatever's there and certainly impeding progress um, and certainly hearsay culture listeners uh, regularly hear from guests where we're talking about utilitarian theories of intellectual property and ultimately focusing on how we can create conditions for innovation. One of the interesting conclusions that you draw in the book is that competition, which you've alluded to, uh, can be viewed as a, and a competition is both a marketplace failure and ultimately can lead to less and not more innovation, which as you pointed out, right, is not generally how we view our own systems. Can you share some examples of where you saw competition um, in the context of building a Soviet internet as leading to less innovation and more problems and how you define that competition within the market. Beautiful question. Thanks. Yeah, that's right. So I see competition as neither good nor bad nor least of all neutral. That is, it's a, it's a practice that we encounter all over the place, not only in the Soviet context, but in, you know, on the street, walking uh, just a part of human nature. And it should be separated mm -hmm. and then reconciled with whatever our economic or regulatory system is at, at the present certainly doesn't belong to one or the other side of, of the Cold War. Um, and in the case of the Soviet uh, network um, project, let me just say a little bit about that. Uh, so um, my story is a story of the rise and fall of a number of uh, ambitious network projects, most centrally the OGAS project. The OGAS project, uh, O-G-A-S, stands for All-State Automated System. 
um, or in Russian, the which was principally driven by a man named Viktor Mikhailovich Glushkov. And Glushkov is um, sort of pushing this life work of his from basically 1961 through his own death uh, in 1982. Uh, uh, and, and he encounters... I think I could identify, I'll, I'll say more about the network in a second, but I'll identify maybe five major groups that opposed um, or felt it was to their own self-interest to uh, push back against his, his vision of a national network. Um, and the first was, uh, curiously enough, um, uh, at the very top level of the government, uh, at, at, in the Central Committee, and in fact the Politburo, um, were some ministers who were charged, whose various ministries were charged with overseeing economic information flows. And this was exactly what o the OGAS project was meant to contribute to. It was a technocratic uh, network meant to manage, automate, transmit, store, and optimize all economic information flows in the Soviet command economy. And thus it was meant to contribute directly to the ministers of finance and the central statistical administration, two major uh, ministries uh, um, uh, at, at the heart of the Soviet bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, curiously enough, I'll, uh, the, I'll, I'll tell you a story. In October 1st, 1970, um, the Politburo comes the closest it probably ever came to approving the OGAS network. Um, all signs suggested that uh, they were going to go ahead and approve it. The, the Soviet state desperately needed some response to the ARPANET, which had become public a, a year earlier, uh, and Glushkov's project was the best on the table, uh, a very ambitious one, and Glushkov was widely liked by an, a number of actors. Um, and uh, what ended up happening is during that day, they they got they got together and to make the a, a committee report short. Uh, basically, the minister of finance stood up and said, uh, "Look, I, we we can't go forward with this project. Um, it's it's too ambitious. It's too too grandiose. Instead, what we need to start is far more pragmatically. Uh, we need to you know talk about building computers that can turn lights on and off, that can turn music on and off." And thus, you know, be installed in, say, chicken farms throughout the Soviet agriculture, and thus stimulate egg production with very simple means, rather than trying to optimize and actually get involved in the information politics of the economy itself. Uh, and uh, as it turned out, on, on the surface of it, uh, the Minister of Finance, Vasily Garbuzov's proposal was accepted uh, for that kind of te technocratic, pragmatist reasons. It was, it was simpler. Um, but the, the politics are for more complicated because it turns out that the uh, Garbuzov, the Minister of Finance, had uh, other ulterior motives in mind in, in proposing a, a more pragmatic uh, way forward with computer networks. He was in fact worried that if the OGAS project were approved, the massive funding flows would go not to his minister, Ministry of Finance, but would be directed, kind of stovepiped into this Central Statistical Administration, which was his seeming competitor ministry, um, even though they shared overlapping and, and uh, uh, purposes. And so instead of uh, being willing to support any form of economic reform, any economic reform or, or any network project that would benefit an, an, an all, all 
a competitor ministry, he uh, had approached the prime minister, um, Alexei Kasigin, who himself was an economic reform-minded uh, prime minister, minded prime minister, and had privately threatened uh, Kasigin to say that if, look, you approve the OGAS project, I personally will make sure that my ministry does it does its all to submarine and undermine the OGAS project going forward. And in this case, it wasn't an empty threat. Uh, the Ministry of Finance had done basically the exact same thing five years earlier to uh, the, the Lieberman-Kasigan reforms, which was a sort of partial piecemeal attempt to privatize parts of the command, uh, command economy. Um, and th that should have succeeded, but was in part stymied due to internal uh, pushback from the, the ministers and the bureaucrats themselves. Um, so instead of being a kind of rational... Weberian bureaucracy. We encounter um, a bureaucracy that's driven by self-interest and that paradoxically enough, although they're charged with bringing about a space where no market competition can take place, they're nonetheless inundated and compelled by um, sort of conflicts between their own institutional interests. Um, so that, you know, the ministers are just one of them. I, I promised four others. I'll just briefly mm -hmm. mention them. We can talk more, but the Olgas project was also opposed, or, you know, people were free enough to oppose, as it were. They were not regulated in, in their choice to oppose the Olgas. Um, the, uh, the Red Army um, and the, the def Ministry of Defense, um, despite some very top-level support, uh, through and through uh, opposed and refused to share resources with the Olgas project. Um, mid-level mid bureaucrats themselves were afraid that the project would automate and thus kind of, uh, you know, get rid of any need, f obviate their, their own positions. Uh, factory workers, when, when they understood the project, which was not all the time, were also afraid that their, their own livelihood would be sacrificed by a, a rational functioning command economy, and so they opposed it. Um, because in part they wanted to keep open access to the gray economy um, and the informal economy so that they could meet quota. And so these fascinating ways in which on the ground the live practice of the Soviet economy is anything but regulated. Um, uh, but it's like simultaneously regulated from on high as well as um, dynamic and rich and pernicious in its uh, in internal uh, um, negotiations. And lastly, even the liberal economists themselves, who were very few and far between, but were nevertheless very reform-minded, were afraid that the OGAS project would would uh, uh, steer economic change away from uh, sort of market liberalization. Um, and and so what the, the point is, all of these folks are uh, different examples of the surprising sources of competitive behavior um, in in a S Soviet state. It, it, it's you know I I'm sitting here, Benjamin. I have to tell you, and this happens from time to time. I mean, I'm I'm thrilled with all of my guests, but I was literally thinking as you were speaking that there's so much there in what you just said that this should be a two-part interview um, <laughs> where we do a second hour. And I'm, I'm only I'm only half kidding when I say it, but what, but we'd have to schedule it for a later date uh, because what you're talking about, of course, as you point out, transcends the um, fascinating but but somewhat narrow um, confines of a uh, bureaucracy that uh, built, as you point out, certain things quite well, like weapons, 
but was mm-hmm. unable to build this out. And you draw, and and I and I do want to ask you about it. You're focusing, of course, on public networks rather than military networks because that is where the challenge lied. In right. your in your um, in your acknowledgments um, and your de- really your dedication, um, you mentioned Michael Schutzen among three other wonderful scholars: uh, Jolie Jensen, Fred Turner, and Gary Browning. I mentioned it for two reasons. First, Michael is going to be on the show. Um, in fact, I'm interviewing him next week for a show that's going to air in May on his new book, The Rise of the Right to Know. Um, but also because so much of what you're referring to um, is in this phrase that or name that has ebbed and flowed in its use, which you've alluded to earlier and which I want to get to now, which is cybernetics. Um, we don't hear that word that much. Um, it certainly it's not a word that comes up much on hearsay culture. What is cybernetics? And, and and how is that term used both in the context of the history that you're telling and today? Uh, that's that, uh, I rarely get a chance to talk about this, so let me say a couple of things. Maybe I can speak to both points. Yeah. Um, well, first I'll say that Shudson is a model mentor, scholar, and 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 friend, and um, you know, with some of my own kind of unrepentant communalist uh, instincts to focus on public rather than military networks are in part thanks to his mentorship. So I, um, I, I owe him much, and I hope that everybody reads his fantastic, terrific new book, mm-hmm. um, which is in many ways um, period-specific to what, what we're discussing today. Right. Um, as for cybernetics, um, I would just note that this is perhaps, in my mind, the term who's, uh, that has, while the term itself is, no longer has any purchase, um, that it's the milieu, the intellectual milieu that it helped uh, coalesce and uh, codify in the post-war period has enjoyed massive intellectual success today. So while we don't talk about cybernetics, we talk very much about information systems, uh, feedback loops, uh, control systems. Uh, We're we're, uh, in many ways preoccupied, I think, too much by sometimes misleading analogies between um, organic and mechanical and social systems and much of this of course not unique to cybernetics um, can nevertheless be traced back to an important kind of post-war articulation of um, uh, self-governing systems and their information politics and so while I don't think of myself as a cyberneticist in any sense I d- or, or us today uh, who live in the modern media moment I think nevertheless we inherit a lot of uh, the implications of what uh, you know. One scholar has recently called the cybernetic moment hmm. um, in the in the post-war period. So, uh, you know, uh, it's the backdrop for the for the book. Uh, the cybernetics is the backdrop against which the rest of my actors play. Um, cybernetics in the American context uh, begins sort of finds its first public articulation in Norbert Wiener's work, um, whom I mentioned earlier, uh, in 1948, when he talks about cybernetics as the science of control and communication in the animal and the machine. Um, Although quickly that sort of limitation to biology and engineering um, expands. And uh, by 1952, he's writing a book about how his insights apply to society, too, media systems, information systems. And pretty soon, his own sort of scientific limitations have um, outrun themselves. Um, and so while cybernetics is a failed 
institutional field, I would argue. Nevertheless, its kind of impulse, its vocabulary um, to analogize and think across information systems is, is very much alive today and needs r recuperation for that, for that reason. In the Soviet context, uh, this field has even broader success. Uh, uh, and in many ways, I would argue that cybernetics, or what I call technocratic neutrality, is maybe the um, the political impulse that's closest to the heir of Stalin himself. So Stalin dies in 1953, the strongman state sort of collapses, and it's figuring out what in the world are we going to do now, and one of the best answers is, hey, why don't we see if we can find a scientific or rational way of introducing and maintaining control that doesn't involve the often surprisingly informal and idiosyncratic um, power measures that Stalin implemented to maintain his top-down control. And and so really the, the story is from the 50s through the 70s is this heyday of Soviet cybernetics. Cybernetics fills that political vacuum, um, as it were, and offers a rich vocabulary across the sciences for talking about control without the the, the politics of, uh, you know, a, 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 a a kind of cultish leader. Instead, it appears to try to neutralize that that away and say, "Look, we can do this um, as scientists without without Stalin." We're chatting with Benjamin Peters, author of the new book "How Not to Network a Nation: The Uneasy History of the Soviet Internet" on KZSUFM Stanford and Hearsay Culture. Um, Benjamin, this this the, this caveat I'm going to offer now particularly applies to this interview, although I say it to everyone. We're now reaching the unfair portion of the show, and it's unfair because we've got about. 14 minutes left, um, which starts closing in on having to cut short somewhat uh, the time that you have to answer the questions. In other words, the luxurious nature of the interview begins to wane um, as we approach roughly about 54 minutes into the interview. So with that uh, caveat, I'm going to ask you a question which, which fulfills uh, the unfairness of the questions. You also use a phrase... Uh, and again, hearsay culture being a show that, that dives deep into books, uh, defining terms is essential. Um, you use the phrase technocratic neutrality um, and it being a function of political forces. Now, you've, you've alluded to neutrality in the technological context already, but what is technocratic neutrality and how does that insight and that definition inform our understanding of the lack of a Soviet Internet? Excellent. I would say, for me, technocratic neutrality is a 25-cent way of saying a two-cent idea, which is that all people believe in finding solutions that minimize political cost or political price. And for technocrats, which involved both bureaucrats as well as scientists um, in the Soviet period, technocratic neutrality is an error to a post-Stalin era. Um, but I would also just, for the, the sake of argument, suggest that technocratic neutrality is a belief that's very much profoundly popular and alive today, um, which is that technological or technical solutions um, can bring about uh, uh, resolutions to ongoing real-life problems without shifting the balance of power. Um, and I think that's, among technocrats, kind of accepted as an article of faith. although. As I try to show in the book, it's also a really important rhetorical assumption that technocrats actually have to make publicly in order to try to carry out real-life political maneuvers quietly. Um, so, you know, 
if we were to tell the IRS or our university accountants that they had no power, they would probably kind of agree with you and say, look, I'm bound. My, my, uh, my hands are bound by all these regulations. What I do is just what I do. Um, and yet, evidence suggests that those who quantify and operationalize our values, and particularly automate them in systems that are larger than ourselves, insert discussion about algorithms and the rest of it here, really do have tremendous infrastructural influence on how our values today play out. Um, and that's, that's the story, it's an old story, but it's an important story, I think, that these, both the Soviet cyberneticists and the bureaucrats who oppose them are partly guilty of. Um, and, and it's one that I think we can recognize very much um, alive and well today. The another concept, and I, I again, this is where maybe a two-parter makes sense. Um, the, there, there is reference with regard to this haggling and and competition among bureaucrats that that repeatedly stalled the building of a Soviet internet. Um, the concept of vertical bargaining um, as an impediment to the creation of a network. Um, you know, how did bargaining work within this project intended to be innovative and revolutionary? And perhaps you could give us a couple of examples of where this vertical vertical bargaining occurred and and its implications. <laughs> Excellent. So the the concept of vertical bargaining comes from easily the best uh, descriptor of socialist economy, Janos Kornai, um, whose work I recommend. Um, let me just say. Uh, let me lead with a joke. So uh, there is a factory manager who's trying to hire, um, uh, uh, what do you call them in English? Talkach. You know, somebody who yeah. acquires, um, like a procurement specialist, right? Um, and uh, acqui so, and acquisitions. Sorry, acquisitions. An acquisition okay. person, right? Okay. And so he's he's interviewing a number of possible candidates, and he's he submits to them only one question. Uh, and the question is, uh, how much is one plus one? Uh, and the first guy says, well, it's two. And the, uh, the hirer immediately dismisses him. The second candidate also responds two, and so he gets dismissed. Um, and then they bring in the, an ex-con who had, you know, had been living life uh, after, after parole. And, and uh, the man asked him his one question, how much is one plus one? And the ex-con stands turns, closes the door, leans in and whispers, how many do you want? <laughs> and, 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 and I think that begins to suggest something of how the administrative bureaucracy works. Um, let me say a little bit more about vertical bargaining. So bar vertical bargaining is the corollary of market bargaining, except it's across a, a vertical administrative structure. So there's this uh, factory level um, negotiation about what production and resources quotas should be every year. And then on top of that, there's a mid-level regional um, negotiate, uh, 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 administrator who reviews those same numbers. And at the top, there's um, a national um, uh, sort of planning committee um, and in the Soviet economy. And so the, the numbers uh, of how many do you need, how many do you want, one plus one, um, go through this continuous up and down vertical bargaining sequence where everybody above you knows that you're going to ask for more resources and you're going to promise less supply than you can actually do because that's just in your self-interest. And so the, your supervisors are necessarily going to negotiate the opposite way. They're going to ask for more than you can provide and supply promise less than you can with the hope that over a three-month period you'll basically come to some equilibrium. 
Um, and this, this happens at every level of the, the vertical bargaining, um, which, which is just simply to s suggest that uh, this sort of, uh, well, I mean, how about this? It's, it's maybe not surprising that those in power in the post-communist period Russia have been so quick to seize power and to understand uh, sort of political negotiation and genuine kind of capitalist without democratic um, impulses, which is that they've been practicing, those in power have been practicing um, market familiar terms for a long time. Um, um, and, and uh, you know, we, we shouldn't be surprised uh, that, you know, the post-Soviet transition uh, was very quickly capitalized by a few very well-informed uh, power brokers. Um, there's, there's long tradition for that type of power brokering within the informal and formal um, uh, Soviet economies. So let me ask you, we have, we have about, uh, I don't know, let's say six minutes left. Um, one, a surprising absence of a focus, and I don't mean in the sense of a criticism as much as what I think one, you know, who's not informed might expect, it would be a, a focus on surveillance. Um, yeah. and, and it's not a big focus or much of a focus of this history. And I'm curious about that, particularly today, and this is kind of which leads to the penultimate question of, as you alluded to the beginning, you know, what, what lessons can we draw for today te today's technological challenges? But before we get there, perhaps you could take two or three minutes, uh, Benjamin, and, ad and address this issue, right? I mean, is particularly since you're focusing on this public Internet, is there evidence that the goal here, as one would, I think, colloquially expect, that surveillance was a goal um, or control was a goal of an otherwise public Internet in the Soviet Union? Or is that really not evident from the research that you did? That's, that's lovely, because my, my instinct, too, going into this, um, this project was, well, surely in an information control culture, there's going to be intense surveillance, and that's going to keep down any genuinely kind of pro-social information project, uh, that surveillance is somehow anathema to uh, what takes place. And I think, uh, don't get me wrong, I'm very much opposed to needless surveillance, but, but this Soviet experience suggests something really important for us today, which is that networks are entirely uh, compatible with, with, uh, with surveillance. Um, and um, many of our uh, favorite things to talk about them, peer-to-peer -peer, uh, production or, you know, end-to-end -end intelligence, kind of miss the point that I think is now obvious, um, uh, that, uh, you know, f whether you're the NSA or Google or whoever else, you're a general secretariat seeking to privatize our power and you are surveilling us um, because you have a network in place. Um, and now in the Soviet context, um, surveillance wasn't an explicit conversation uh, you know, that wasn't what they were talking about, um, but there was a very strong emphasis on economic management. And so I would say that the OGAS project should be understood as a surveillance project so far as you're thinking only about economic um, considerations. Um, and, and uh, you know, Hannah Arendt once pointed out beautifully, and I think this has relevance for us today, um, that uh, oh, 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 I just well, let me see if I can if I can connect this. That <laughs> what Marx did wrong was uh, he pedestaled the wrong type of the wrong image of the human being. So Marx fought for the laborer, the the working economic man, the Homo economicus, um, and that that was his sort of high point in humanity. 
But what Arendt would have us do instead is to, to vault a different type of, 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 of person, a, a political actor, a person with a voice who can change and bring about reform. Um, and perhaps the problem with the Ogas network, in part, is that it could only focus on economic matters. And that it, it didn't, although Glushkov and others were very interested in thinking much more broadly about what these technologies could do, the political conditions were such that ideologically it could commit only to economic reform. And that, in the end, kind of um, ends up uh, limiting the capacity of, the, of, the, of these networks. Um, surveillance was... Uh, except for in the case of one or two small cases was was not a live uh, um, variable in this in this history mm, so there's very little censorship most of the actors that I discuss are well positioned ideologically faithful card-carrying communists with a lot of access to secret um, information and uh, with a lot of uh, power and capacity and the, the simple fact is uh, they lived productive normal lives um, and they helped build or they wanted to build productive normal lives and in that sense, I think are much similar to us than we would um, care to admit. Usually, I'd, I'd almost stop there if this were a pithy ending. But I do. But I do want to ask you one last question. Um, and you have about three minutes on this one. What I just alluded to. So, lots of technological challenges today, from e-government to e-commerce. Uh, what? What are there? A few lessons you would like policymakers and th- and theorists about what's going on today take from this history? Absolutely. Um, so I think the call, the history is also a, a call for virtuous and limited uh, governance, which is that it, it recognizes that infrastructural innovation in a modern networked world has already al- always involved mixed economies and where, you know, collaboration is central. Um, and I know that's a big general, uh, in, uh, maybe obvious insight to many, but it's an important one, I think. And also to help us get over the old kind of narcissistic difference between um, corporations and states when in fact their behavior are often so very common. Um, there's ways in which the USSR command economy should be understood, I think, as the world's largest corporation um, in some of its behavior. And I'd be glad to say more about that later. Um, um, and it just helps, I think, for us to refresh and t- take a new look at um, some of the hidden ideological biases that we inherit from a Cold War divide between private markets and public states, and and instead helps pivot and, I hope, prompt us to think more carefully about the promise of um, public action in the face of overwhelming private power, which in the private power here is occupied equally by Soviet states, by the NSA, by Google, by who, who, whatever large um, organization, large information organization you'd want to target. Well, I'll tell you what, ben, I, Benjamin, I... I... I want, particularly as we are in the full silly season, and it's been a scary season um, in our uh, presidential campaigns. Why don't you take one more minute and uh, draw it a little bit more the the idea of this a uh, public action ability to impact uh, private entities and behavior, and then, and then we will close. <laughs> okay, all right, and much more to say. Thank you so yes. much for your time. I'll, I think I'll just say this. You know, right now we're experiencing. Kind of the European Europeanization of of American politics, right? So we've got Trump, uh, sorry, Trump, uh, the kind of the right wing and incoherent nationalist, and on the other side we've got Sanders, a left wing socialist Democrat. Um, and uh, while they appear so opposed, and while our Facebook feeds are ever driving those differences, I just want to propose, in light of this book, that what they're proposing is in many ways um, an old problem 
and it's an old divide that gets the debate wrong. Um, and that whether you cede power to a state or to free market um, acquisition, you're, you're missing the real opportunity, which is, I think, to start building a higher social, political, maybe even moral order uh, where collaboration is prized and in incentives and innovations are distributed um, uh, across, across many actors and fields. And uh, that provides no solutions, I admit, um, but it, if nothing else, helps us uh, refresh the, a very old conversation. Benjamin Peters, uh, professor, University of Tulsa, author of the book How Not to Network a Nation, The Uneasy History of the Soviet Internet. Fascinating book, uh, incredibly useful, um, and I really enjoyed reading it. Um, I, I Like I said, I do invite you back on the show. We're going to have to talk separately about when because there's just so much here to dive into. But for now, I will simply say thank you for joining us on Hearsay Culture and uh, bringing this uh, terrific uh, and insightful story to my listeners. Thank you, Dave. Looking forward. So we've got a number of great guests coming up on this spring quarter um, and unbelievably 10th anniversary quarter uh, of Hearsay Culture. Coming up next week, uh, Professor Pam Samuelson uh, from UC Berkeley School of Law and the School of Information on the Authors Alliance. Um, we are, because the show is going to air today, uh, April 22nd, uh, next Tuesday, live at Elon Law. I'm thrilled to have uh, Larry Lessig join me live for recording the 10th anniversary show of Hearsay Culture. That interview is going to be at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time in Room 207 at Elon University School of Law in Greensboro. Uh, you can find information about it both on my website as well uh, as going to Elon Law's website. Uh, but uh, it is going to air on KZSU on May 6th. Um, and we're going to be talking about not only uh, Larry's uh, reflections on the past 10 years of Internet law, uh, but also his current efforts to fix democracy through campaign finance reform. Uh, following uh, the interview with Larry, uh, as I uh, mentioned during our discussion with Benjamin, uh, Professor Michael Schudson of Columbia's School of Journalism and author of the new book, The Rise of the Right to Know, Politics and the Culture of Transparency. Uh, then, um, and this is going to be this is going to be a big uh, four guests simultaneously on the show. Uh, but look, they are all the co-editors of the book, "The Turn to Infrastructure and Internet Governance." The guests are Francesca Musiani of the French National Center for Scientific Research and Professors Derek Cogburn, Laura Denardis, and Annette Levinson of American University. Um, discussing uh, this co-edited book. Uh, then uh, Professor Paul Ringel of High Point University, author of Commercializing Childhood, which focuses on marketing uh, to children, uh, a relevant topic given our focus on hearsay culture involving trademarks and marketing. Uh, then uh, Professor Neil Natano of UCLA Law, author of, and I just received this book in the mail today, uh, of From Maimonides to Microsoft, The Jewish Law of Copyright Since the Birth of Print. And rounding out this quarter, Professor Missy Cummings of Duke University's Department of Mechanical Engineering and Material Science and Director of Duke's Humans and Autonomy Lab on autonomous or fully autonomous automobiles. Um, as always, you have several ways to listen to Hearsay Culture. You can listen this quarter at 2 p.m. Pacific Time Fridays by going to kzsulive.stanford.edu or you can get the show via podcast by going to hearsayculture.com by going to the iTunes page for the Center for Internet Society at Stanford Law School. And as always, you can reach me 
by emailing me at davidhearsayculture.com or going to the contacts link at hearsayculture.com. Thank you for joining me today on the show. I do hope to see as many of you as is possible um, physically in Greensboro on Tuesday at 1230 Eastern Time. But until the next show, thank you for listening. Please stay tuned to KZSU for more diverse programming and have a great day.